Faith Over Fear is brought to you by Life Audio and is part of our Faith Toolkit series. For more inspirational, faith-affirming podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hello, and welcome to the Faith Over Fear podcast, where we attack our most pervasive fears with truth, because life is too short for any of us to live enslaved. We are passionate about helping God's children live in freedom. We would love to chat with you online or on social media. Visit our show notes to learn how to connect with us. I'm Jennifer Slattery, and I'm super excited to have author, speaker, and podcast host Steve Carter here with us today. Steve, thank you for joining us. It is an honor. Thanks for having me. So Steve is the former lead teaching pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. And by the way, he knows my pastor, so that was kind of fun. He hosts the Craft and Character podcast and co-hosts one of the top sports podcasts, the Home Team podcast, with NFL players Trey Burton and I'm going to get this wrong, I apologize, Sam Acho, which unpacks the intersection between faith, culture, sports, and family. And I know my husband will be listening to that. (laughs) His latest book, The Thing Beneath the Thing, which I read in like two days, and I absolutely loved. It's now available wherever books are sold. And he's here to talk about his book and really some of the ways that God goes deep into our souls to bring us to places of increased wholeness and freedom. And Steve, I really loved your transparency Mm. and your authenticity with which you wrote and your insight into human behavior. And in your book, you made a statement that really intrigued me. So you said that we're all products of the messages of love and shame we've received. And I would really love to hear more about that. Yeah. Well, first off, thanks so much for reading uh, the book. It's, you know, you, you kind of spend time in an office and, you know, God kind of deposits some ideas, but you never know who is going to read it. And knowing that someone like you has read it, it just means um, truly more than you know. Um, but I, I, I used to be a junior high pastor for many, many years. I would sit with the sixth, seventh and eighth graders and they were just these like little puppies in so many ways, like just so much energy, so much innocence, so much like power at their disposal. And then I would have these conversations with their parents. And oftentimes, like I I felt like I really wanted to help the parents understand their junior hires. And I remember one time just at this like parent meeting saying this phrase, kids are very perceptive. They're just not always the best interpreters of reality. Mm. So, so like kids, they actually see something that's going on, but it's how they interpret it. Right. And it's the stories at which they interpret, Oh, mom and dad are fighting. Oh, they must be getting a divorce. Oh, mom and dad are fighting. But if it's, if it's actually this, this understanding that's built in love, then, then they're going to interpret, they'll have a better chance of interpreting the story in a healthier, more biblical, more like wellness oriented way. But if it's like, if they've had shame um, kind of at their disposal, you did something wrong. You're not good enough. You keep messing up how they perceive and interpret a story is going to be more leaning towards shame and fear and not good enough. And so this is where healthy guides, this is why Holy Spirit, this is why the scriptures, this is why great mentors or counselors, spiritual directors, pastors, like this is good 
friends where we can actually get really, really curious and go, hey, it feels like the way that you're interpreting that story is more in line with fear or shame than actually in truth or grace or love. So that's kind of the essence of it is when, when you have these stories of love, you, you almost have this uh, Gottman who's a, a kind of a marriage uh, counselor, therapist thing. He often talks about having positive override. You would have this, when it's built in love, I can give positive override. It's built in shame. It's always going to be negative override. Wow. So actually a lot of our listeners do come from places of trauma. And so as you were talking, I, I know just from messages we've received and people we've interacted, they have that shame filter. So what would you say to them? How can they begin to override that false narrative with one of, of love and truth? Yeah, great question. So a practice that I typically do once a week and um, I, it comes out of Proverbs 4.23. This is, you know, above all else, you got to guard your heart because everything flows out of it. So this idea of the word guard in Hebrew is the word natsar. And it, and it means like to relentlessly protect whatever matters most. And, and here the, the wisest person not named Jesus in the scriptures is saying, above all else, it's, it's here. Everything is going to flow. That word flow is posa in Hebrew. And it's like, this is kind of like where everything springs forth. And so I just started this practice of playing it back. And I think that what makes us all human, we, we've, for some of us, our levels of trauma that we've experienced is um, just so unfair, so unjust, so not okay when it comes to God's heartbeat for humanity. But I have, to, I have to play it back because we've all been given 168 hours. And I play it back and I look back at the previous week and go, hey, was there any moment that I made decisions that were more grounded in shame or fear or worry? And so I just spent time journaling about that. It's typically on a Sunday night or Monday morning. I reflect, on, on, I reflect back. And then from there, I play it out because um, – the way my life seems to work is if I don't learn something once, um, God's so kind, he's going to keep bringing opportunities in the upcoming weeks to have to put myself in a similar situation. So I play it out and I imagine myself back in a similar situation um, without maybe the food that I wish I would have had in my body, you know, so I might've been a little hangry or without the, the level of sleep that I had that made me just a little bit more kind of sensitive. Um, I just try to play that out, but I imagine Jesus beside me and I just imagine him just saying like, okay, I'm here. How would you do it again? And I, and I just go, okay, how would you do it grounded in love? So I play it back. I play it out. And then here's just two other simple places. I go, as I look ahead to the week, I go, how do I play it smart? And again, if, if everything's going to flow out of my heart, then I got to be refueling that. And I know so many, many sincere Christ-centered people who, man, they are, they're doing a lot of good, but they are not refueling their heart. And so what am I going to do this week to ensure maybe it's Sabbath, maybe it's hiking, uh, maybe it's, you know, going out in the water, maybe it's just spending some extra time um, with a dear friend that I haven't talked to, but how am I going to refuel my heart? And then um, it's a commitment to always play it honest. And, and that's the fourth one. And that's just, I feel like for me, I've struggled in my life to be emotionally honest. Um, it's, it's, 
it's easier to be fine. It's easier to be good. It's easier to kind of stuff the trauma or stuff the sadness or not want to make space for the grief, but it has a way of coming out and coming out to the people I love most. And so for me, just the simple practice once a week, play it back, play it out, play it smart, and play it honest, just allows me to be more attuned to the way of Jesus and attuned to what's really going on within me. I love that. So you are personally intentional regarding your own healing and growth. I have to be. You know, I, I, you, there's a lot of things you can delegate out you know, you, you can, you can delegate certain things, uh, in your, in your work, but when it comes to your emotional wellness, your spiritual growth, um, that's, that's what we have to take responsibility. Dallas Willard had those great 10 words, you know, grace is opposed to earning, but grace is never opposed to effort. And I think I need to receive that because it really, it really takes effort for me to, make decisions that are grounded in God's love, not in the shame that was handed to me. You know, when you say that, I do think we have to have an understanding of God's love, right? To have that courage to invite him in. So maybe talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that is a great point because for many of us, I think we've maybe said, oh, you know, God loves me, or we've sung that song, or we know, you know, that verse, God is love. But I think for many of us, we, um, we know facts, but we haven't experienced it for ourselves. Um, you know, for me, I can just fill in blanks. God loves me when, um, God loves me when, um, I failed. Um, God loves me when I experienced success. Um, God loves me when, um, people buy this book and God loves me when nobody buys this book. God loves me when, and, and so that's, that's. Um, that for me is, is really based on my God's love for me. It goes back to, you know, even with Jesus being baptized, he hadn't done any miracles. He hadn't done anything except be faithful to enter into the baptism waters. And God says, this is my son and whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And to truly experience in Henry now in language that you are beloved beloved by God. Um, it is a, it's just, it's, it's a ongoing struggle for me because my love has been dependent on my performance or my success or my achievements or accomplishments or what I can do for another. Um, it's pretty amazing when you can strip away God's love and it's not an if then relationship. It's just, it's an is relationship. God is love and God is loving you at all times. It's just, um, can we receive it? And that's what I've been on this journey, especially over the last few years, like learning to receive God's love and not trying to achieve God's love. I was really inspired about your story. You gave a story of a compass. And, yes. and, and in fact, I, I think I'm going to buy a compass for my entire team. And I would just love for you to kind of share a little bit about that time, kind of leading up to the story and why it had such an impact for you. And then how, how you use, like how you found your compass. 
Yes, great. Um, so I, I was really, really fortunate. A number of years ago, I had the privilege to meet um, Bob Goff. And Bob is, I mean, an amazing, amazing communicator. He's just, um, you know, I think every time he came to Chicago, he would teepee my house. Um, and so here's a guy like in his 60s who just um, is uh, fun personified. Um, but man, he just knows how to show up. And he can show up in moments that just probably don't make sense for a lot of people, but man, he um, just, just knew how to show up. And I was walking through a really, really difficult situation. It was one of those kinds of situations that probably for many of us we've experienced um, where you don't feel like there's a win. And as someone who's constantly looking for the win, like how can this be the greatest win for as many people as possible? There just wasn't a win. Um, and because there was so much uh, connected to this story. And um, if, if I'm, I'm kind of speaking a little bit like uh, in, in code, but the, the, the real story of it was um, my mentor, there were allegations of affairs and sexual abuse and abuse of power. And um, it, it was becoming apparent that these stories were true. And it wasn't like something that the congregation was fully getting the full picture. Um, I honestly didn't have the full picture. And as I was starting to get more and more of these stories, um, I just thought to myself, oh my goodness, like these brave women have come forward. Um, This congregation uh, has no idea like what is really going on. Um, Some really good people have made some really bad choices to kind of minimize or cover up. And, and all of a sudden I'm kind of like the face of this like organization and I'm sitting here going, Oh my goodness. I don't, I don't necessarily know what to do that can make everybody happy. And so I could, I found myself going, how can I make everybody happy? And, and then Bob shows up one day and he just said, Steve, and he grabs me by the shoulders And he just says, which way is north? And I'm like, what? Like, that's the question you want to ask me? He's like, which way is north? And I think I went like up. Like, I don't, I I didn't, I didn't know where I was in this building. Like that you found me and he's like, and he, and, and then he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out this compass and he starts looking. He's like, like a little boy, like, like he's like at Disneyland and just got a compass or at REI for the very first time. And he's just like, there it is. Yes, that's north. And he said, Steve, the Bible teaches us that we have this author and perfecter of our faith. It's Jesus. All we have to do is follow true north. He hands me the compass and he says, every meeting you walk into, look for true north. Every moment you feel all of the sense to try and make everybody happy or find the win, pull out that compass and find true north because that's the only person that's the only person who can get you through. And that's the only person that you have to, to try and please on this earth. Just find true north. And it was so simple, but it was so practical, but it felt so holy. And I carried that compass for the next few months in my pocket. Every meeting I went to right before, I was like, there we go. And it just, it was like this simple little practice of like, oh yeah, when, when, Twitter is doing what Twitter does or when I am feeling the internal fear or shame or worry, I, there's a lot of stuff that I can't control, 
but I can control choosing to chase after true north. And it led me to just continue to say, no, at the end of the day, it's about integrity. It's about character. It's about following Jesus. And it's about chasing true north. And for me, that compass became a paramount to the decisions I made, um, but also paramount to just a reminder of when it's all said and done, the one thing we can control is what we're going to chase and which direction we want to go. And I'd rather go north than south. I'd rather go north than east. I'd rather go north, um, even though west coast is pretty amazing. I still rather go north. That's beautiful. Well, and that kind of reminds me of just how when you're kind of discerning those things, you does your your desire to stay curious, does that kind of help you navigate, especially like in gray areas? You'd mentioned in your book just numerous times about staying curious. So how does that help when we're trying to kind of discern those things? Yeah, I think I think curiosity is such a lost art. And part of it is it keeps us in a, a humble posture. It keeps us in a, a learning posture. It keeps me kind of like on my tippy toes, like leaning in when I'm curious. And, and I think for me, the curiosity happens um, on multiple fronts. The first one is, hey, what's really going on? Um, because if I, if I don't understand what's going on in my heart and I'm not emotionally honest, I'm going to make decisions. Everything flows from it. I'm going to make decisions that are either going to lead me towards true north or they're going to lead me away from it. So for me, the curiosity is, okay, what's really going on? How did we get here? Like what, what actually happened? And, and so, so much of the book centers around what triggered you. Um, and, you know, if you, if you read Esther 3 backwards, it ends, the Esther 3 chapter ends with the king and his right-hand man sit down for a drink while the rest of the city of Susa are bewildered. And if you just read it like verse from 15 to 14 and just Kate just started reading it backwards, you'd begin to recognize, oh my goodness, why, why is this whole city bewildered? And if you just in this curious posture, oh, because a massive genocide had been decreed, why would a genocide be decreed for who to be killed? all the Hebrew people, what, how would this happen? And you just start like getting curious and curious and more curious. All of a sudden you realize, oh, when the right-hand man of the king was walking everywhere he went, people would bow down. But one day Mordecai was like, I'm not bowing down for that guy. And he got so triggered that he literally said, I don't want to just kill that guy. I want to kill them all. And then literally funds a genocide or attempts to fund a genocide. And I, I just go, if he would have just been curious to go, that guy really triggered me. Like that guy, why wouldn't he do that? Why wouldn't he bow to me? But like he couldn't. And so all of a sudden this narrative was created. And, and then this energy was like basically, because when we get triggered, it's like literally, it's, it's all of this, like it has to come out of us. And so this guy just ended up creating this story and built this false narrative and was like, it's not just him, it's all of them. And, and I'm not saying that you or me or our listeners are going to go cause a genocide, but man, we do a lot of collateral damage when we're not curious. We, we, you know, nobody wakes up one morning and goes, you know, Jen, today I'm going to actually self-sabotage every good thing in my life. Um, today, I'm going to actually destroy my integrity. But somehow it happens because we lost that art of curiosity of what was really going on. 
And we started to kind of fly the plane blind. And I think for me, just slowing it down, getting more curious has prevented me from um, allowing my own desires or flesh or just past to try and take me um, away from true north. You know, and let's get pretty specific with that because you gave a concrete example in your book. And I got to say, I, I think I'd be great friends with your wife. I just loved her. Like you share a story when she's like, okay, Steve, this, this triggered you. And so just tell us about kind of what happened so we can get an idea of what this might look like just in a non-genocidal situation. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great line. Uh, my, I was the pastor in Southern California for a number of years and I had someone on our team and um, they, they often in meetings just would kind of share something, but just the tone of it um, was a, it was a little bit short, a little bit cutting and I often just found myself leaving meetings just tense, a little bit frustrated, then had to get into like LA traffic and drive home, which didn't help the conversation. But I remember like walking in one day and I, my wife could read me really well. And she's like, what's going on? And I just said, I'm really, really frustrated. I feel like every time in this meeting, I was sharing ideas. I didn't feel like people, I didn't feel like this person was listening. I felt like they just were just moving on. And I, and I was looking for some backup. I was looking for some like support, like, you know, that person always says this, that, like just, I was looking for like almost that like Christian gossip that was like, you just got that support that you wanted. And she just responded with, isn't God so kind? And I'm like, <laughs> what? Like, what do you mean God's so kind? Like I'm looking for backup. She was like, isn't God so kind that he keeps bringing people into your life that reminds you of someone who deeply wounded you. And he just keeps bringing people in your, into your life until you honor this truth of this wound and this pain. And I was like, what? And it changed me. Like literally I began to realize that whenever I was triggered, I used to get so frustrated and angry. Like, why is this triggering me? Now I get so curious because I realized those triggers are untended wounds that I just haven't had the time, the courage, the space, the willingness, the humility to actually begin to address. And it was just the my wife's wisdom, Sarah's wisdom, just to say, hey, God's so kind. And it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And that word repentance is just that, that invitation to come home, to come back to that safe presence, to his love, his truth, how he sees you, how he sees the situation. And for me, that just became such a, just an, an open door for me to, to see these triggers as real invitations to becoming more whole, holy, and spiritually healthy. You shared a story about a friend that you encountered or, or you were talking with who was starting to kind of unveil some deep things in, in his heart. And what I loved about your story when you shared that, you kind of showed two sides. Like one way we can shut that down by some people's reaction, right? How we can either shut down other people or even in ourselves 
we, we can kind of give ourselves this false narrative like you talked about, or the way we can kind of come alongside. And, and I would just love if you could share that story and then also in discussion of God's, God's leading us to wholeness, like kind of that sanctification process that you talked about. Yeah. So it, what's incredible is it was really helpful for me. And, and this is what's amazing is just the breadth of scholarship, you know, and wisdom that um, they're just, there's out there. I know you're an avid reader and um, you know, there's just so much good theology. Um, and I learned that John Wesley had these three stages of grace and it was really, really helpful for me because sometimes I had kind of this assumption that once I said yes to Jesus, he was going to make everything better. There's a great uh, line in, from this band, uh, Brand New. They're not, they're not a Christian band, but I love the honesty at which this guy was wrestling. He said, Jesus Christ, um, what did you do those three days that you were dead? Because this problem is going to last more than the weekend. And I, I think that for many people, they, they come and they, they raise their hand or they go to the altar or they have this experience and all of a sudden they still wake up tomorrow with that addiction or with that struggle. And I think for, for many people, it's really, really confusing. Like, oh no, does, does God still love me? And then the stories and the cycles of shame. And so what Wesley talked about was something called sanctifying grace. And I just remember realizing that um, this is a process. I mean, Ruth Bell Graham, I don't know if you've ever seen her tombstone. Um, it just has her name, the date she was born, and the date she passed. And then underneath it, it says, construction completed. Thanks for your patience. And I just love that because we are all of these pieces of work in process, allowing that sanctifying process. But what's amazing is sometimes we um, – by our language, shut off that process of sanctification. And, and that, that meeting you were talking about, I was in this conversation. We were in a boardroom conversation, and there was, a, there was a great leader, and he was just confessing. And there was this really, really great spirit where he was confessing um, just his own um, kind of insecurities, his own struggles, his own fears. And in many ways, uh, was like acknowledging, like, I have a problem. I keep repeating certain cycles. I have a problem. And I was like, this is breakthrough. You know, this, like the, the, the pastor, the, 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 the kind of desire for like spiritual formation. Like, I'm like, this is a breakthrough. And I was about to like ask a further, like a, a follow-up question when another guy said, um, Hey man, that's awesome. But just know that by the blood of Jesus, you're forgiven. You are good. Like, let's like those chains have been broken. You are good. There's freedom in this house. And just started in this like spiritual pep talk. And, and again, all that stuff, I believe, I believe, but I also believe that this problem is still going to be there until we have the courage to honor its truth. Like my wife said, and here was a moment where this, this, this man was being curious and it almost got shut down. So then I felt like he was shamed for his curiosity. You're not believing enough that the chains have been broken. You're not believing enough in the freedom. And 
this is why that Dallas Willard line is so helpful for me is grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And it's this effort. It requires us to enter into the sanctifying process. And that word sanctifying, I feel like it's a dated word. Truth be told my, my heart for, uh, that this the book the thing beneath the thing is to kind of subversively reclaim the word sanctification because i'm watching so many um many of us just make decisions that are not leading to our wholeness or holiness or out of a place of spiritual health and that's what sanctification does it makes us whole and holy and so um this is my heart i feel like if we can get more mentally uh, aware more emotionally aware more spiritually aware and actually show up and stay curious um and not just use almost these christian clichés but really engage we are going to experience oh my goodness the father's love we are going to experience that this rabbi Lord, Savior, Jesus is beside us. And we're going to experience what the Holy Spirit longs to do. And it, it like longs to illuminate more of Christ in us and through us. So that's my, my deep desire. Well, that's a great way actually to end this discussion. I'm going to end it with a quote that you left in your book that I loved. And you said, the greatness of sanctifying grace is found in God's incredible lifelong commitment to make us whole, holy, and spiritually healthy. And I think if we hold on to that and if we remind ourselves of that, we'll have the courage to remain curious, even if that struggle takes a year, a decade, or like for some of our listeners who have post-traumatic stress, if it takes multiple decades to say, I'm going to have the courage to be curious and to trust that God does love me and is bringing me to wholeness and freedom. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was just an amazing discussion. Thank you so much. An honor to be on this with you. And we're going to put information regarding his book. And again, I cannot recommend it enough. You'll, you'll find it in the show notes. And it's The Thing Beneath the Thing. And it helps you to go deep to say, okay, what is holding me back? What is triggering me? What is hindering my freedom? Thank you for listening. And may you live as someone who truly has been set free. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Faith Over Fear a production of Life Audio and the Salem Web Network. If you enjoyed what you heard today, we'd love for you to head over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. To learn more about Jennifer Slattery or to check out any of the resources she mentioned in this episode, just head over to her website, jenniferslatterylivesoutloud.com, or check out our show notes. This episode was produced by Kelly Givens and edited by Stephen Sanders. A special thanks to our executive producer, Stephen McGarvey. For more Faith Toolkit podcasts like this, just head over to lifeaudio.com. Everyone wants to change the world. Capital Ministries is doing just that, one heart at a time by creating disciples of Jesus Christ among political leaders in the U.S. and foreign nations. For more than 25 years, founder Ralph Drawlinger has written Bible studies specifically for public servants. Study along with us and learn what the Bible says about capitalism, communism, abortion, same-sex marriage, and other contemporary issues. Subscribe and follow us at lifeaudio.com or search Capital Ministries on your favorite podcast platform.